0: Chapter 41 of No Quarter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Cullum. No Quarter by Thomas Main Reed. Chapter 41. By the Buckstone. On the highest point of the Forest of Dean district, just 1,000 feet above ocean's level, is a singular mass of rock known as the Buckstone, an inverted pyramid with base some 15 feet in diameter, poised upon its apex, which rests on another rock mass of quadrangular shape, as upon a plinth. Into this, the downturned apex seems indented so far as to make the apparent surface of contact, but a few square feet. In reality, the two masses are detached, the superimposed one so loose as to have obtained the character of a rocking stone. Many the attempt to rock it, many the party of tourists who had laid shoulders against it to stir it from its equilibrium. Not a few, taking departure from the place, fully convinced they had felt or seen it move, and many the legend belonging thereto druidical and demoniac, some assigning it an artificial, others a supernatural origin. Alas for these romantic conjectures, the geologist gives them neither credence nor mercy. Letting the light of science upon the buckstone, he shows how it comes to be there by the most natural of causes, simply through the disintegration of a soft band of the old red sandstone interposed between strata of its harder conglomerate. From beside this curious eccentricity of the weather-wearing forces is obtained one of the finest views of all England, or rather a series of them forming a circular panorama. Turn what way one will, the eye encounters landscape as lovely as it is varied. To the east, south-east and south, can be seen the far-spreading champagne country of Gloucester, Somerset and Devon, here and there diversified by bold, isolated prominences as the Cotswolds and Mendips, with a noble stream, the Severn, winding snake-like along and gradually growing wider, till, in funnel shape, it espouses the sea, taking to itself the title of Channel. From the shores of this, stretching away northward, but west from the Buckstone, is a country altogether different. No plains in that direction worth the name, but hills and undulating ridges, rolling up higher and higher as they recede, at length ending in a mountain background, blue-black, with a horizontal line which shows many a curious col and summit. The greater portion of this view is occupied by the Shire of Monmouth, its foreground being the Valley of the Wye, where this river, after running the gauntlet between English Bicknor and the Dowards, comes out surging and foam-crested as a victorious warrior with his plumes still unshorn. And as he in peaceful times might lay them aside, so the fretted and writhing river, clot after clot, casts off its snow-like froth and seemingly appeased flows in tranquil current through the narrow strip of meadowland on which stands the miniature city of monmouth although below the buckstone at least nine hundred of the thousand feet by which this surmounts the sea's level the point-blank distance between them is inside the range of modern great guns and so well within that of a field glass that from the overhanging forest heights men could be distinguished in the streets of the town or moving along the roads that lead out of it. As already said, one of these is the Cayman, then the main route of travel to Gloucester by Colford and Mitcheldean near where it attains the forest elevation at the picturesque village of staunton a lane branches off leading to the higher point on which stands the buckstone a path running through woods only trodden by the tourists and others curious to examine the great balanced boulder on that same afternoon and hour when the cadgers were toiling up the caiman hill two personages of very different appearance and character both men might have been seen entering into the narrower trackway and continuing on up towards the rock-crowned summit. On reaching it, one of them drew out a telescope and commenced adjusting the lens to his sight. If his object was but to view the scenery, there was no need for using glass. Enough could be taken in by the naked eye to satisfy the most ardent lover of landscape. Though in September the woods still wore their summer livery, for on side it is late ere the foliage loses its greenery, and quite winter before it falls from the trees. Here and there only a dash of yellow, or a mottling of maroon red, foreshadowed the coming change, but no russet grey as yet. The afternoon was one of the loveliest, not a cloud in the azure sky, save some low-flying fleecy cumuli, snow-white but rose-tinted, towards which the sun seemed hastening as to a couch of repose. A cool breeze had succeeded the sultriness of the midday hours, and, aroused from its torpor, all animated nature was once more active and joyous. Out of the depths of the high meadow woods came the whistling call of stag and the bleat of roebuck, from the pastures around Staunton, the lowing of kine mingled with the neighing of a mother mare in response to the weir of unweaned foal, while in forest glade might now and then be heard shrill cries of distress, where fierce polecat or Martin, had sprung upon the shoulders of some hapless hare, there to clutch and cling till the victim dropped, dying on the grass. All the birds were abroad, some upon the trees, singing their even song or making their evening meal, others soaring above with design to make a meal of them. Of these a host, for nowhere are the predatory species more numerously represented than along the lower wye. More numerous then than now, though still may be seen there the fish-eating osprey, oftener the kite with tail forked as that of salmon, not unfrequently the peregrine falcon, in flight, swift as an arrow, and squeal loud as the neigh of a colt. And at all times the graceful kestrel, sweeping the air with active strokes of wing, or poised on quivering pinions, as upon a perch. In those days eagles were common enough on the wye, and just as the two men had taken stand by the buckstone, a brace of these grand birds came over, the owners of an eyrie in the Caldwell Rocks, or the Windcliff. After a few majestic gyrations around the head of Staunton Hill with a scream, they darted across the river to Great Doward, and thence on to Quarter Coppet Wood, But he, using the telescope as his companion, took no more notice of them than if they had been but skylarks, nor looked they on that lovely landscape with an eye to its beauties. They were neither tourists nor naturalists, but soldiers, and just then, man, with his ways alone, had interest for them. Both were in uniform, the elder, though there was no great difference in their ages, wearing that of a colonel in the Parliamentary Army, a rank which in these modern days, when military titles are so lavishly bestowed, would seem as nothing but in those times of a truer conservatism, even though the social fabric was being shaken to its foundation, a colonel held as high command as a major general now. So with him who had the telescope to his eye, for it was Colonel Edward Massey, the military governor of Gloucester, and the other was a colonel too, on the parliamentary side, though in uniform of the somewhat irregular kind, dressed as a cavalier, but with certain insignia, telling of hostility to the cavalier's creed, one especially proclaiming it with bold openness this a bit of gold embroidery on the velvet band of his hat representing a crown thrust through and through by a rapier. Fair fingers had done that deft needlework, those of Sabrina Powell. For he who displayed the defiant symbol was Sir Richard Walwyn. Why the two colonels were together and there needs explanation. Many a stirring event had transpired, many a bloody battle been fought since the surrender of Bristol to Rupert, and among them, that most disastrous to him as to the king's cause, Marston Moor. It had changed everything, as elsewhere, freeing the Forest of Dean from the royalist marauders, who had been so long its masters. Massey had himself, Dealt them a deadly blow at Beechley, routing Sir John Wintour's force, caught there in the act of fortifying the passage across the Severn. That occurred but three days before, and the active governor of Gloucester, having hastened on to Staunton, was now contemplating a descent upon Monmouth. There was one who had pressed him to this haste, having also counselled him to attempt the capture of the town. This, the man by his side. But a woman, too, had used influence to the same end before sallying forth from Gloucester to Beechley. A girl, a beautiful girl, had all but knelt at his feet, entreating him to take Monmouth. Nor did she make any secret of why she wished this, for it was Vega Powell believing that in Monmouth Castle there was a man confined whose freedom was dear to her as her own but she feared also for his life, for it had come to that now. The lex talionis was in full, fierce activity, and prisoners of war might be butchered in cold blood, or sent abroad, and sold into slavery, as many were. Luckily for the young lady, her intercession with Massey was made at the right time, he himself eagerly wishing the very thing she wanted Ever since becoming governor of Gloucester, Monmouth had been a sharp thorn in his side, compared with which Lidney was but a thistle, and now having laid the latter low, as it were, plucked it up by the roots, he meant dealing in like manner with the former. To capture the saucy little city of the Y would be a coup worth a whole year's campaigning, with it under his control soon would cease to be heard that cry hitherto resonant throughout south wales for the king to still the hated shibboleth alike hated by both he and sir richard Walwyn were now by the buckstone with eyes bent upon monmouth end of chapter forty one